forgotten church history. I see this memory loss in our response to the current culture in which we live. The culture in which we live is wicked. The culture in which we live is one in where righteousness is seen as odd and wickedness is seen as normal. We live in a culture where they call good evil and evil good. We see this in discussions on gay marriage. We see this in abortion. We see this in corrupt politics and the growing hostility towards the Christian faith. And as these issues become more and more accepted, the question is often asked by us, the church, how can or how will the church continue to exist in a world where righteousness is seen odd and wickedness is seen as normal? And there are serious threats to our faith. And this question completely ignores the world the church was born into. Think about the world at the time the church was birthed in Acts chapter 2. The religious leaders in Jerusalem had recently murdered the founder of the church by convincing the Romans to crucify him. This was done to stop the movement he was starting. These same leaders had an extreme dislike towards this movement and its followers and the rising leaders after they killed the original leader. The extreme dislike moved into persecution of the leaders, telling them to shut up talking about this Jesus. Quit making it as though His blood is on our hands. But these early leaders refused to shut up or back up. They refused to quit talking about the Jesus that they knew and that had saved them. And so the persecution then moved from the leaders to the people. And the hurt was put on them in great force. The persecution was so fierce that Christians were forced to leave their homes in Jerusalem and move to other parts of the Roman Empire because they feared for their lives. But as those believers went to other parts of the Roman Empire, they did not shut up and they did not back up. They continued to share the gospel everywhere that they went. The Greek and the Roman world that they lived in was wretchedly wicked. Sexual immorality was rampant and totally accepted. In fact, in many places there were male and female prostitutes that were temple prostitutes And committing sexual immorality with them was seen as an act of worship to various idols. Abortion was fairly common and allowed in this culture. The government at this time had near absolute power. Caesar was seen as a god and emperor worship was mandatory. The Caesars would eventually take an antagonistic view of the Christian faith and heavily persecute them. Christians were dipped in pitch and burned alive. To light the emperor's parties at night. That's where the phrase, the Roman candle, comes from. Christians were fed to the lions for sport so that people could watch them die. They were tortured in an effort to make them deny Jesus. That is the world the church was born into. So the question, how can or how will the church continue to exist in a world where righteousness is odd and wickedness is seen as normal and there's serious opposition to our faith, 
The answer to that question is that the church will relearn to do now what the church did then. We must realize the church not only survived in that environment, it thrived. The church in that environment shook the world for Jesus Christ. They made the world a different place. Everywhere they went, the world changed. The world's opposition to the church will not stop or hinder the church. For Jesus said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against His church. We as the modern church have forgotten this. Today we are going to start a series of messages that I've called Sin City. The series will focus on Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. The goal of this series is to remind us of the truths we've forgotten. To encourage us to stop the fear-filled hand-wringing that's so often the characteristic of the modern evangelical church. And to challenge us to boldly engage our spiritually darkened culture with the light, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to start this study in the book of Acts. So open your Bible to Acts chapter 18. It's page 847. In your pew Bibles, when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Acts 18 and verse 1. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. The title of the message today is Into the Darkness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love You. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. God, You have given us much in Jesus Christ. You have given us much in Your Word. And You have given us much in Your Holy Spirit that lives within us. Father, we need You to help us. Lord, we have not really long lived in a world where righteousness was seen as odd and evil was seen as normal. As Americans, we've not really lived in a world where there was opposition to our faith. In a lot of ways, God, what's going on in our culture today is uncharted waters for most of us. But God, we know that it's nothing new for the church of Jesus Christ. It's nothing new for you. God, there is a temptation to be afraid. There is a temptation... To shrink back and to curse the darkness. And that is not even remotely what you have called us to do. What you have expected us to do. What you empower us to do. Father, we are to go into the darkness with the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
do all that we can to engage and push back the darkness by your strength and by your power and for your glory. And we need your help to do this, God. We need you to encourage us where we're afraid. We need you to strengthen us where we are weak. We need you to remind us of what we have forgotten. We need you to empower us. We need you to use us. We need you to accomplish your will and the world around us for your glory. Father, we ask you to begin this work in our lives today. As I stand today to try to preach the message you've given me, fill me with your Holy Spirit and with your power. My speech and preaching will not be with the enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of your Spirit and your power. As our faith and our hope would stand in you. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech and just help me to, to do your will today. Let your Spirit do His work in our hearts. Let our hearts be the open ground, the good ground. Bring change into each one of our lives today, God. Search us and try us. See if there's anything displeasing to you in our lives. Show us what that is and give us the strength to turn from it. We ask in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. The city of Corinth was considered to be one of the most important cities in the Roman Empire. It was a commercial bridge between the east and the west. It attracted immigrants, merchants, freed slaves, retired centurions, and visitors from around the world. The people who came to Corinth came from a variety of cultures, religions, and lifestyles. For the most part, they kept the culture, religion, and lifestyle they brought to the city, and Corinth embraced that. Corinth was... It had a very permissive attitude towards morality. And honestly, I really think that to call it a permissive attitude towards morality does not describe the attitude that the people of Corinth had towards morality. The name Corinth was synonymous with debauchery and gross immorality. The phrase to live like a Corinthian, it meant to live a drunken, debauchery-filled life. It was that generation's what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. The immorality in Corinth was fueled by the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. At any given time, the temple employed around 1,000 priestesses who, who operated as sacred prostitutes. These priestesses would come down from the temple in the evenings and ply their trade on the streets of Corinth. The temple of Aphrodite was just one of the many pagan temples located in the city of Corinth. Say that Corinth was... Bound in spiritual darkness would be a major understatement. And in some time, around 50 A.D., the Apostle Paul goes into the city to fight against the spiritual darkness of Corinth. He doesn't go with letters to his senator. He doesn't go petitions. He goes with only one thing. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And he preached the gospel to Jews and to Gentiles alike, to anyone who would listen. Many people heard the Apostle Paul declare the greatness and the power and the work of Jesus Christ, and they believed and they were saved. And then he left, and when he did, he left a fairly solid church that needed to carry on the mission of making disciples of all nations. Acts chapter 18 gives us a a summary of Paul's year and a half in Corinth. And as I was studying the passage this week, I was impressed by what I saw. Paul did go to Corinth armed with nothing but the gospel. And despite the great spiritual darkness, the great oppression that he, and opposition that he faced, many, many were saved. What I, I realized is this one truth that we have to know today. Spiritual darkness is no match for the light of Christ. The spiritual darkness of our world is no match for the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You and I as believers, we must be convinced of this. We must understand this. We must take the light, the gospel of Jesus Christ and engage those trapped in spiritual darkness. As we look at what Paul did in Acts chapter 18, there were... Seven principles that I I found that he, that I think are transcend the culture, that are things that we need to do today as well. Time constraints would not allow us to look at all seven today. We will look at three this week and four next week. And, And I'm pretty convinced that everything we see in these next two weeks, we're going to see over and over again as we get to the book of Corinthians. Because these seven principles, they work. It's what you do to challenge the spiritual darkness of the world around you. So the first principle is this. Go to people who need Jesus. Go to the people who need Jesus. Verse 1, it says that after these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. Corinth was hard ground. The people of Corinth were pagans, idolaters, immoral. You name it and they did it. If we had time today and later we'll get to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, take some time and read 1 Corinthians 6 about 9 through 11 to look at, at the sin the people were involved in when Paul arrived. Deeply entrenched in sin. Far from God. No concept of Jesus Christ. No concept of one true living God and a Savior that He had sent. Paul made it a point to go to people who needed Jesus. And as we think about what it means to go to people who need Jesus, there are two aspects of this we have to understand. Focus on those who don't know Jesus. And I know that sounds like I'm restating the same thing again. And it kind of is, but there is an important distinction that we have to understand. When Paul went to Corinth, he went to a place where there were no Christians. There was no gospel witness. There was no one there who knew Jesus. 
And this was the way he operated his life. I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, so I should build on another man's foundation. The application to this for us is that we need to focus on people who don't know Jesus. I read something once and it said that there are three kinds of disciples of Jesus. There are those who build God's kingdom by reaching out to those that are far from Christ. They reach out to them, they try to help them come to know Jesus Christ and then become disciples of Jesus Christ. There are disciples who build their own kingdoms. And they reach out to people that are already saved, that already know Jesus, that are involved in church in an effort to bring them to their church. And then there are those who build no kingdom because they never actually reach out to anyone. The reality is, the first disciple is the only one that's truly following Jesus. The first one is the only one that is truly following the example of the Apostle Paul. When we seek to engage the culture that is trapped in darkness, the easiest thing for us to do is to reach out to our friends who already go to church. And it's easy because they're already like us. They already believe basically the same things we do. They dress the same way we are. They understand the lingo. They're not much different than we are. But if we are to make disciples of all nations, if we are to engage a spiritually darkened culture with the light of Christ, we cannot focus on the people that go to the First Baptist Church. We can't spend our time on those that are going to the Nazarene Church. We must focus on those who do not know Jesus. And only when we engage those that do not know Jesus are we challenging the spiritual darkness with the light of Christ. A second truth with this is that we have to, we have to go to them. There, there is an actual need that we go to them and we talk to them. Paul went to Corinth. And then he went about doing what he could do to connect with people. He went to where the people were and then he talked to them about Jesus. The common misconception in our day is that we, we engage the spiritual darkness. We are lights for Jesus as we live a good Christian life. I witness with my lifestyle is how it's often worded. And I agree with the idea of lifestyle evangelism to a point. I mean, our lifestyle matters. Uh, what makes our words have power is that our life backs them up. That we live what we preach. You, you cannot underestimate the importance of that. But the reality is, no one ever sees how you live, no matter how godly and good and Christ-like you are, nobody ever sees how you live and suddenly says, I need Jesus. At best, what we can hope for is that they will see how we live and they will say, what makes you different? And guess what we have to do then? We have to use our words. Our words are absolutely necessary to telling people about Jesus. Look, what we're told in Romans. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now that's a, that's a promise. That's a certainty. 
someone asks us, can I be saved? We can un- unwaveringly say, absolutely, you can be saved. If you call on Jesus, you will be saved. But, let me ask you this, what is necessary in their lives before they call on Jesus? They have to believe in Jesus. Paul says, how shall they call upon Him who they have not believed? Why would they call out to Jesus to save them if they did not believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Son, the living God? They wouldn't. Why did you call out to Jesus to save you? Because you came to the point where you believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. So they have to, they have to believe in order to call. But what's necessary for them to believe? Well, they have to hear about Him because how shall they believe in Him in whom they have not heard? You know, we, we live in a day where we assume that everybody knows who Jesus is and what Jesus did. The fact is, those days are gone. They're gone with black and white TVs and the VHS and they ain't ever coming back. We live in a world where those around us have never heard a clear gospel message. They have no clear idea who Jesus is, what He did, and why He's important to their lives. Their idea of the gospel is what they've seen from the Westboro Baptist Church on the television. Their idea of a Christian is what they've seen on the TV as Christians are mocked. They get more of an idea of who Jesus is and what Jesus is like from the Simpsons than they do from the Bible. So they will never believe in Jesus and they will never call on Jesus because they've never actually heard about Jesus. So how will they hear about Jesus? What is necessary for them to hear about Jesus? How shall they hear without a preacher, without somebody to tell them? Somebody has to tell them about Jesus. And if you won't tell the people in your life about Jesus, and if I won't tell the people in my life about Jesus, who will? Do you know what the the most likely answer to that question is? Nobody. Chances are, if you and I won't do it, no one else will either. And so they will live within arm's reach of 17 churches. And they will work with Christians that are members and active in these 17 churches. And yet in all of that time, they will never be told about Jesus. So they will never have an opportunity to believe in Jesus. So they will never call on Jesus. And so they will never be saved by Jesus. If we want to gauge the world souls that are bound in spiritual darkness. We have to go to them. We have to talk to them. We have to make that effort. A second principle we see from this is that we need to work with others. Verse 2, it says, And when he came to Corinth, he found certain Jews named Aquila, his wife Priscilla, 
And because he was of the same trade, he, he worked with them. He stayed with them. And then in verse 5 we see that Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia and they worked with him as well. What I like about this is that, I mean, you think about who we're talking about here. This is, this is Paul, the apostle. He saw Jesus in a vision. He had healed people through, Jesus had healed people through his hands. I mean, can you, can you imagine? I mean, literally laying your hands on someone that was crippled and praying for them and seeing them healed. Paul could imagine that because he had done it many times. Paul had preached and thousands had turned to Jesus at a given time. And it would be easy to think that Paul, what he would do is he would just go there and be Paul, right? I mean... I don't need anyone else. I'm the Apostle Paul. But that's not what Paul did. Paul arrived at Corinth and he found other people immediately. Right? And we find out in, in Corinthians and in other places that Priscilla and Aquila, they weren't just Jews. They were Jews that had believed in Jesus. That's what he did. He didn't just find his kinsmen. He found brother and sister in Christ, and they worked together to reach the people at Corinth for Jesus. And then, while they were working together, other people came. And they also worked with Paul to help them reach the people of Corinth for Jesus. In our day, we want to go it alone. I, I don't need anyone. Just me and Jesus. We've got our own thing. I can do it. Let me give you some reasons why... That won't work. First, working together is biblical. Take some time and read Paul's letters. Because what we see here about him finding people to work with and having others come to help him, it is not unique. In fact, unless I'm mistaken, Ephesians is the only letter that Paul wrote where he did not list co-workers, fellow laborers, and kind of others that were soldiers of Christ along with him. Read through his letters. Take note of how many people he listed that helped him, refreshed him, supported him, labored with him in the gospel. What Paul did, he never did alone. He always worked with others. We can even look at the example of Jesus. Jesus came to reach the world, right? Right? And did he go it alone, or did he gather a group? He gathered a group, so that they could do it all together. Going it alone, not, get, not getting others to help you, that is prideful, it is wrong, it is not biblical. We need others. A, a second reason is, that I can't do it alone. But you have to understand this. When it comes to reaching the culture for Jesus Christ and making a difference in those who are bound in spiritual darkness, it's not something you can do alone. The mission is just too big. The Apostle Paul, when we get to 1 Corinthians 3, he's going to say to the people, I planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. And I think there are two applications for this for us. Well, there's several, but two for today. One is... Paul didn't reach everybody that was a part of the church at Corinth by the time he wrote the letter. There were some people that were a part of the church at Corinth when Paul wrote the letter that he preached to, and they said, no, nah, I don't think so. 
He planted seeds in their life. He witnessed to them. He tried, but it did not reach them. Then Apollos came. After Paul, he began to preach. And they were like, oh, that's what Paul was trying to say. I I believe now. But also, Paul planted, Apollos watered. God gave the increase. Apollos wasn't even there by the time Paul wrote to 1 Corinthians. There was another pastor. And I believe part of the implication is that there were some people that, that Paul couldn't reach, that Apollos couldn't reach, that the next guy was able to reach. Right? There are, there are just people that you can't reach on your own. There are people that I can't reach on my own. But as we work together, we can reach them. I mean, think about your sphere of influence. We all have people in a sphere of influence. People that we have regular contact with. And we have the ability to influence them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Influence them for Jesus. And our spheres of influence are different. And the thing is, I'm not in your sphere of influence in a lot of places. I don't work where you work. I don't hang out with your friends. I'm not a part of the same organizations that you're a part of and you're not with me. So, I can't reach those folks that you're trying to reach just naturally. Somehow, we have to work together to be able to reach them. Do you know the the best way that we can work together to reach them together? is if we invite them to church. And as we invite them to church, they're going to be given an opportunity to hear about Jesus, to believe in Jesus, and to call upon Jesus. And, and as they see other people, they may make a connection with someone else in here that can do what you can't, that can do what I can't. Studies show that 85% of people who come to church, they come because a friend or a family member or someone that cared for them invited them. Now, we can debate all day about the usefulness of percentages and studies. But let me just ask you. Because here's what I'm convinced of. In this room today are people that are part of this church for one of two reasons. You were born and raised in this church. Somebody invited you to this church. I mean, didn't someone invite you and say, come and be a part of what's going on here? And by their influence, you were brought in. I can't, I can't do it alone. You can't do it alone. There are people in your sphere of influence that you can plant and you can water. But you will never reach. But by working together, we can. I told a story a few weeks ago in our, uh, our discipleship class. And I'm going to have to hurry. Um, but there's a pastor in Dallas. And he's a great preacher. He's one of the best preachers I've ever heard. He's one I listen to. If I'm going to listen to a preacher, he's one of my favorites. And for years he worked on reaching a guy with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he shared the gospel. And he shared the gospel. And he shared the gospel. And the guy just wouldn't listen. Wouldn't came to church and just had nothing to do with it. And he told him, he said, Chandler, this is it. This is the last day. He said, I'll give you one more shot to reach me with your Jesus. And then you leave me alone after that. So there was like a big men's conference. And Chandler said, I'll take him to the men's conference. And the speaker was supposed to be kind of world-renowned speaker. And the guy comes up and, and he's, he's not making sense. He's telling lame jokes. Some of them are borderline off color. And, and, and Chandler is just horrified. The guy sounds like he just woke up and is making it up as he goes along. And he's thinking, this is terrible. This is terrible. 
the last shot I had, and it's this. And he said he looked over and the guy had tears streaming down his face. And he looked at Matt and he said, is this what you've been trying to tell me all this time? It was like, yeah, I guess. Right? Whatever that guy said, that was what he needed. Chandler could have kept on for years and he never would have reached that guy. The stuttering dude on stage was able to. We could keep on for years and we might never reach those in our sphere of influence. But if we bring them here... We connect them to the church. We might together be able to reach them with the gospel of Christ. And then a final reason. is that eternity is at stake. You know, the reality, the truth. We can't forget and we can't get out of our mind. Hell is real. That people go there. People who do not believe in Jesus, they do go to hell. It doesn't matter if they're moral. It doesn't matter if they're nice. It doesn't matter if they're kind. What ultimately matters most is do they believe on Jesus Christ? And if we fail to connect them to Christ, we have not reached them with the gospel of Christ. I mean, that that is at stake and we must always remember that. If we want to engage the culture, those that are trapped in spiritual darkness, we, we have to work together. I mean, even in a small town like Gaiman, there is more than any one of us could do on our own. Together, there's no telling what God could do through us. We must work together to reach our community, to engage the spiritual darkness with the light of Christ. And then the final principle for today, focus on the message of Jesus. If you look at verse 5, it says, When Silas and Timothy had come... From Macedonia, Paul was compelled in the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. And in other places in this chapter, it makes a point to bring that out. Verse 8 says that Crispus believed in the Lord. Right? He, why did he believe in the Lord? Because Paul told him about the Lord. When Paul went, Paul had a lot of things he could have said. There was a lot wrong with the immorality and the idolatry in Corinth. And he could have focused on any number of things. But what Paul focused on was on the message of Jesus. In fact, when we get to 1 Corinthians 2, we're going to read where Paul says, I determined not to know anything among you save Christ and Him crucified. So for a year and a half, Paul had one message for Jews and Gentiles alike. The message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And this is so critical for us to understand. As we go out and we begin to talk to people and try to engage those trapped in spiritual darkness with the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, there are many competing messages that will try to take precedence. But let me assure you, the people we deal with, the people we talk to, they need Jesus. They do not need your political ideals and they don't need mine. They don't need your standards and they don't need mine. Friend, I want you to understand they don't even need your morality. Moral people die and go to hell every day. Democrats and Republicans die and go to hell every day. People with high standards die and go to hell every day. But not one person who believed in Jesus has ever died and gone to hell. The message they need is the message of Jesus Christ. 
Do not allow yourself to get sidetracked on issues that do not point to Jesus Christ. That is the one message that must be the focus, that must stand as all that we say and what we do as we engage the spiritual darkness. That is the only message that can make an eternal difference in people's lives. It's the only message that can turn people from darkness to light. That is the message that makes the difference. Now, when we talk about focusing on the message of Jesus, here's what we have to do. We have to be sure we know what the message of Jesus is. If someone asked you, what is the message of Jesus, could you explain it clearly, concisely? Jesus knew this would be a a potential issue. So before he ascended to heaven, he gave his disciples a commission. And he told them what the message was. Thus it is written, thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. So let me give you four aspects of a gospel message. What must be there to focus on the message of Jesus. First, Jesus is the message. Right? He said that repentance and remission of sin must be preached in his name. And that Christ suffered and died and rose from the dead. Right? The message that we proclaim, the primary message that we must take is the message of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right? That Jesus, Jesus is the message. Right? We must make sure as we are sharing the gospel, we are telling people about Jesus, that we talk about the fact that he lived, he died, and that he rose again. Regardless of anything else we say, anything else we might do, if we do not tell them about Jesus who died and rose again, we we have not faithfully proclaimed the message of Jesus. We cannot cannot tell the message of Jesus without telling about the Jesus of the message. You just can't. A second part we have to deal with is is I must address sin. And this is where we start getting squirrely because it's hard. But it makes sense if you think about it. If I'm going to talk about Jesus dying, then I need to explain why he died, don't I? Because the reason for his death is pretty important. I mean, that's, that's, that's gosh, I mean, I, I hate to say it this way, but I, I might even say that's more important than the fact he died. Lots of people die. Lots of Jews were crucified by the Romans in Jesus' time. Why was his different? Because he died for sin. He wasn't a martyr for the cause. He didn't die because he made corrupt politicians angry. He died as a martyr. All right, not as a martyr. Good grief. Now I'm contradicting myself. Good thing service is about over. He died as a sacrifice, a vicarious sacrifice. He died in our place. We, we can't gloss over sin because Jesus died for sin. Right? If we're going to tell people they need Jesus, why do they need Jesus? I mean, listen, I like Rick Warren. I love the purpose-driven life, but God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life is not the gospel message. Why did Jesus die? Why do you need Jesus? Because you have sinned against a holy God. And that God will hold you accountable and judge you one day lest you believe in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in your place. That's why we need Jesus. Not to make us happy. Not to make us healthy. Not to make us wise. We need Jesus to save us from the judgment to come. And I can't talk about that without dealing with sin. The people we, we talk to, we engage, 
they must understand that they have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They have to understand that the wages of, of sin, their sin, is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. They must understand that Jesus died for their sin. And that they need Jesus to save them from the judgment that their sin deserves. And if we have not addressed sin and, and, and ensured that they at least understand that concept, we have not told them the message of Jesus. It is absolutely necessary. Why do they need Jesus? There's no sin to be forgiven for. Repentance is required. That the repentance and the remission of sin should be preached in His name. Repentance is basically a change of mind about God and sin that results in a change of life. The basic way to understand this is that repentance is understanding that I've been wrong about my sin. Right? Prior to believing in Jesus, I thought my sin was basically okay. I thought your sin was vastly worse than mine. And I was a pretty good old boy, and everything was going to be right. And all of that religious stuff about thou shalt not and thou shalt, that was just people going a little too far and holding on to old-fashioned Victorian morals. But in Mark Pond repentance, I changed my mind about that. And I believe that God was right, and I was wrong. My sin was serious. My sin was my fault. My sin did make me legitimately guilty. Before a holy God. And then I turned from my sin. Right? Repentance is a change of life as well. Right? I can't say, well, I'm living in an adulterous affair, but I believe in Jesus saved me from the consequences of my sin, but I'm going to stay in this adulterous affair. You've not repented. You're still there. That's not going to work. Repentance requires a, a willingness to change, a, a desire to get out of the sin and to get into Jesus. That it requires that change of life. And that's, that's a requirement. There is no salvation without repentance. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. Anyone who genuinely believes will repent. Anyone who repents does so because they believe. You cannot have one without the other. So repentance is required. We, we must tell them, and they must understand, my sin is wrong, God is right, God help me, I'm going to do all that I can to get out of my sin, my idolatry, whatever. So repentance is required, and then finally, the gospel is good news. Jesus said that remission of sin should be preached in His name. Remission of sins is basically the removal of guilt. It is the idea that we get the idea of justification. Right? With that, the remission of sin is the removal of guilt. It's, it's as though we've not sinned. The moment that we repent and believe in Jesus Christ, God makes a difference in our lives. And, and our sin and our unrighteousness is taken away from us. And the righteousness of Christ is applied to our accounts. And in that moment, we are in good standing with God. And as long as we are in faith in Jesus Christ, we are always in good standing with God. Today I stand before you not perfect by my actions and my attitudes, but I stand before you perfect in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because of what He has done for me in taking my sins away, I am holy, I am justified and I will be redeemed and I have absolute confidence in those things. Again, not because of me, but because of Jesus Christ. Friends, that's good news. The gospel tells us about something
that we cannot do ourselves. It tells us how to get rid of our guilt, our shame, our condemnation, and how to remove us from the certainty of the judgment of God. That is good news. And as we go out and share the message of Jesus with people, we must understand it is good news. We are not oppressing people. We are not, mar- we are, we are not persecuting people. We are not trying to force our religion down their throats. We are telling them the best good news the world has ever known. And we, we must be convinced of that. If we want to engage those that are trapped in spiritual darkness, we must focus on the message of Jesus. It's not enough to say God. It's not enough to say believe. We must say Jesus. The message is about Jesus. And apart from Jesus, we have not helped people a lot. Loads of people believe in God. They define Him however they want. They make Him however they want. But then there is only one Jesus. We must tell them the message of Jesus. We must say Jesus. Let me ask, are you you ready to go and engage the spiritual darkness of the world around you? The light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a scary thing. It is a worrisome thing. The gospel is the most powerful message the world has ever known. It started with merely 120 people in an upper room in a small city called Jerusalem. Today that message has made a difference in virtually every country in the world. Through, through that message and through the difference it makes, there have been slaves freed. There have been rights elevated. There have been orphans cared for. There have been souls saved, lives changed, differences made. And it is the only message in the world that has ever made that kind of lasting, far-reaching impact. The gospel spread. Not because we took the sword and said, repent or die. But because we went and we were willing to face the sword saying, repent and believe. That is the message the world needs. That is the message that changes the world. If we want to engage the spiritual darkness, this is how we do it. Let's stand.